y'all can clap along. <laughs> Starting to get good at that, I like it. Let's sing together. I'll give you all my worst and I'll give you all my praise. You alone, I long to worship. You alone, I worthy of my praise. kind of mixed up a little bit and uh, wanted to sing with you guys, but uh, we take this time each Sunday to kind of just look at who God is and to sing about that and remind ourselves of how great our God is, so I think this is a great song to, to do that, so you guys will sing out with us. Uh, it has a, actually an extra chorus, and I can kind of teach that to you guys. It goes like this, so you're going to get it in your heads. You alone are the matchless king. Majesty, your thoughts and wonders, what can I fashion the air? You shine in the light. Nicole, can you put those words up there? Just from that first chorus. You guys can sing that one out with us. It starts out you alone. It says, there we go. Okay, so yeah, just sing it out so you'll get the hang of it. You alone are the matchless king. To you alone be your majesty. Your thoughts and wonders, what tongue can beside fashion the air. You shine in the light. Alright, so that's how it goes. Now sing it out with us. The 
time of reflection if you bow your heads. I'm going to read uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. Father God, we thank you for freedom. We thank you for those words from King Solomon. And we hear echoes of those words from our forefathers, as said in the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God, thank you for the foresight of our forefathers in establishing this nation 
built on you. And I just pray revival over our country and to remember that blessings abound upon us as a country because of whom we built the country on. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. time as a time of confession to come before God and confess uh, that sometimes we rebel and sometimes we are less than he has called us to be but he offers us his strength ask him for that so just take this time and let's sing to our God who comes to us as broken people and makes us whole
Good morning again. Good morning. If you will open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians 5. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 today as we continue our series called In God's Family. And uh, if you don't have one, the black Bibles under the chair will be on page 978. 978 in those Bibles. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 together. As I said, we're continuing this series called In God's Family. And what we've been looking at in this series is the idea that uh, in God's family, as his children, that's how we live out every other role that God calls us to have. Uh, So you may be single. You may not have parents. You may feel like you don't fit in a family or have a family role, but, but centrally and primarily you do as God's child. And no other role that, or every other role that you then live out, you live because you're his child. Because he has adopted you, he's brought you into his family by faith. If you trust in him, if you trust in him giving you Jesus for your life, for the forgiveness of your sins, then you're his. Then you're in his family. Then if he calls you to be a husband, then you can be a husband because you've got that security, that primary identity taken care of as his child. Then if he calls you to be uh, the child of someone, you know how to do that. Then if he calls you to be a wife or if he calls you to be single, if he calls you to be an employer or an employee then you know how to work out those roles. We're going to be continuing this series uh, all summer long, kind of topically looking at different roles that we fulfill. I want to thank Mike Harris for filling in last week as we looked at uh, just the roles that we have of, of living on mission in community as a church. So kind of the, uh, the family side of being a church and how we do that together and how we uh, encourage each other and, and live about uh, God's priorities in our life. I want to thank him for that. He did a great job. And uh, the next two weeks, we're going to have some guests as well when I'm on the mission trip. Uh, next week, a friend from Temple Bible Church, Dave Tate, will be sharing on work and what that looks like in employer-employee relationships. I know most of you probably just love work all the time and have no issues there. Uh, but for those few of you that struggle, sometimes at work, I think it's going to be a good message for you in understanding what it means to live out the gospel in the workplace. Um, and then the week after that, Stephen Watson, our own assistant pastor, will be sharing with us. Uh, about marriage Um, and then uh, we'll be back after that and uh, we're going to continue on looking at parenting and marriage and some other issues throughout the rest of the summer Um, this one in Ephesians 5 is is really focused I think primarily on singles uh, but it also really relates to everyone we're going to really focus on sexuality and what it means to live pure so parents this is going to be kind of a PG message I don't think I'm going to say more than the S word that I just said but uh, but some of that's going to be discussed today, and so when I pray, you can sneak out if you want to. Um, that's no problem. I will not be offended. Uh, but I'm going to uh, – my kids are here, so just so you know, it's not going to be over the top or anything. But we will talk about uh, just human sexuality and how God calls us to live as pure um, and what that means for single as well as someone's married uh, as well. So we're going to look at Ephesians 5. We're going to look at today 1 through 21, but I'm going to read right now just the first seven verses if you want to follow along with me as we read these first seven verses, Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. We're calling the message today, Walk in Freedom. And what we're going to see in this text is the contrast. You know, we often think that we are given freedom so we can do whatever we want, right? Isn't that how most of us think of freedom? Freedom is like, woohoo, no more, no more anybody telling me what to do. I can do whatever I want. Uh, but in Scripture, freedom is freedom from death. It's freedom from sin and being in bondage to our own desires and being set free to serve other people being set free to worship something other than our own desires, our own belly, and being able to worship God and serve other people. And so we're going to get that perspective here of of that that kind of flipping upside down, what freedom really is, what it really means to walk in freedom and to walk with Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are hard words. 
This goes against a lot of what we are taught growing up and taught in this culture. And Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. For those of us that love you, I pray that you would help us to love you well and know what that really looks like. For those of us that, that don't know you and don't understand your great love for us, I pray that, that you'd give open ears and open hearts and sensitivity to hearing your word, that your spirit would come and teach us. We thank you that you've given us instruction, and we pray that you'd help us to live as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an interesting story in uh, Reuters, a news story from a couple years ago, about a young German lady, interestingly enough, I'm going to Germany soon, young German lady that was in a juvenile prison for stealing. Her name was Steffi Krauss. And really, all that Steffi wanted was to walk in freedom. She just wanted to be free again. She just wanted to taste freedom one more time and no longer be in bondage to that jail. And Steffi had a friend that was being set free. Steffi had a friend that was being set free, and so they concocted a plan. And they thought, hey, I know. I can, uh, Steffi can be stuffed in the suitcase, and then her friend could roll her out in the suitcase with wheels, and then they could both be free. Friends could get out together. And so they worked on their little plan, and, and it actually worked. I guess it was like a low-security prison because, you know, they, the guards said, well, we noticed the suitcase was really heavy, but we didn't think to open it up and check it. Um, and so Steffi was finally free. Steffi Krauss got out, and she's now walking in freedom. Or at least she thinks she's walking in freedom, right? Because sadly enough, Steffi was going to be released in two weeks anyway. And so now Steffi is a fugitive from the law. Now Steffi decided to take matters into her own hands and, and to get freedom and take the shortcut and find her way there, but she's not really free. Now she's running from the law, and if she gets caught, she's got to do more time because now she's broken another law in addition to stealing. And I think Steffi's a great example of how, how we often live and how we understand freedom. Often we take shortcuts. Often we think that freedom is doing whatever I want, and we end up binding ourselves further. As I said before, in, in Scripture it talks about freedom being set free from our own sin and, and from the penalty of death. Freedom is trusting in Christ that he took the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we can now be set free to serve others. You see, as long as you're worshiping self, as long as I'm worshiping self and not worshiping the true God of the universe, I don't have the ability to serve other people. All I can do is serve myself. Mike Harris talked about this a little bit last week when he had the PowerPoint. He was talking about our mission and how basically before Christ our mission is just self-satisfaction. But after Christ, then our mission should be to serve others. And that's what Christian freedom is. So when we talk about freedom, we talk about being set free from our own desires, no longer bound to that, but now free to serve someone else. Free to serve God, free to serve the world. And so that's, I think, what Paul is getting at in, in this section. When he's talking about living as pure, he's not saying take on some new bondage of, you know, 19th century mores and rules. He's saying live in pure freedom, live in real freedom, walk in freedom. And, and he starts off by saying the most important thing that you need to do if you want to walk in freedom is to understand whose you are. You see, you've got to know how to live and be who you are by knowing whose you are, who you belong to, right? And so the first thing I want to look at is walking in sonship. Walking in sonship, knowing that we are his. And this has been a theme that we've hit on a lot as we talked about being in God's family. And it's just these first couple of verses, and then we'll get into some of the rest of the text. But in these first two verses, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Are you living as a child, or are you living as an orphan? Are you living as one that thinks you have to scrap and fight and make your own way? Or are you, are you living as one who's resting and who's free and who knows that you're being taken care of? There's a big difference in how we live our life. As I said before, you can live any role that God calls you to if you know you have the freedom of being his son. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This, this whole package of Jesus giving himself for us, that's the root and the foundation of how we walk through this life, knowing that we are his sons. We've talked about this before. I'm a third-born son, but I have the rights of a first-born son in Christ. 
Actually, I'm a second-born son, third-born child, whatever that is. But, but you may be a daughter, you may be a second-born, you may be a third-born, but, but in Christ, we have the inheritance. We have the rights of first-born sons. You understand? So we live, we walk in sonship, knowing that by faith, not only are sins forgiven, because our sins were taken on the cross, were put on Christ when he died for us, but we're also loved. We are also delighted in We are his children, and he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. And so this substitution, this sacrifice where it says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, not only did he give himself up in death, but he gave us his life. And so when God looks at you, he sees you as as delightful as he sees Jesus himself. And this is mind-blowing, and this changes the way we live. Women, if you thought that God truly delighted in you and truly thought you were beautiful, would you be willing to settle for a second best with some man that mistreats you? Would you be willing to just kind of give yourself away to anybody? Or would you want to walk in in freedom and walk in your sonship that you have in Christ? Men, same thing. Would would you just abuse your body and and treat women as objects and, and live a sexually impure life if you really understood that God delighted in you as your very own child? This is the foundation of where it all starts. Getting your head on straight and understanding what God actually thinks of you. Understanding that, yes, He is a God of wrath, but He's poured out His wrath on Christ, and He's poured Christ's righteousness out on you so that He delights you, so that He loves you, so that He sees you as His child. You've got to understand that. You've got to remember that in order to do anything else in the Christian life. There's this great illustration that the Navigators use. The Navigators is a ministry that... One of our elders uh, is very involved with here, and it's been around for a long time. This illustration was actually come up with back in the 1930s by the founder of this ministry. His name was Dawson Trotman. And Dawson was trying to look for an uh, illustration that was a little more active, you know, instead of like a chair or a table or a hand or something. He, he liked the wheel idea, right, because the wheel's moving, and the Christian should be active. The Christian should be moving. It says around the tire, around the edge of the wheel there, the obedient Christian in action, Okay. So the Christian should be moving. Things should be happening in your life. This great illustration has some other things. You know, it's for helping to educate people that don't really understand who they are and what they're supposed to do in the Christian life. So here's some basics for you. He's got some spokes here on the wheel. The left one is witnessing. Think of like in a trial. You're a witness in a trial, and you just you tell the judge what happened, right? So in the Christian life, that translates into just, just talking about who God is and what he did for you. You know, you've got to be able to just basically explain, yeah, God loves me. He saved me. Okay? Witnessing, sharing that with other people. The top one is prayer. You, you want to be able to communicate with God. You want to pray. You want to go to Him with your problems and share your praises with Him. The bottom one is the Word. You want to actually know what His Word says and be involved in studying it and learning it and reading it. And then the right spoke is fellowship. A lot of people think this means ice cream and potluck suppers. Um, but actually the, the Greek word means like a partnership. It means locking arms. So Christians should actually do life together. We hit on that a lot. You know, We're trying to get you in small groups. We're trying to have you build relationships with, with each other and actually partner with each other in life, uh, not just kind of pass you know, side by side and not really know each other, but actually lock arms and do life together. And so Dawson Trotman came up with this illustration. He's got the, the uh, tire there and he's got the spokes, but the most important part, the, the place where the power comes from in the wheel is, is where? It, it's right there at the center. That's right, it's Christ at the center, the hub of the wheel. That's where the axle connects. That's what drives the wheel. There is no power. There is no obedient Christian in action unless there's something turning the wheel. And we so quickly misunderstand that in the Christian life. We so quickly jump to everything else, right? It's all about my obedience. That's that's where it's all at. It's all about these things I'm doing. Well, I'm fellowshipping. I'm reading my Bible. And those are the things we should be doing. But if we're not being driven by Christ... If our affections aren't stirred by who he is and, and what he did for us, then, then all that kind of falls apart. The rest of the wheel kind of begins to break down. You start spinning the wheel yourself. You start kind of creating it in your own image, and, and it spins out of control. But, but here in these verses, as in many other places in the Scripture, we're told that that's what powers us is, is knowing what Christ did for us. Knowing who he is, that's going to push us forward. That's going to give us the strength to frankly make some very difficult choices in this culture. Living as a sexually pure people, walking in purity, is a difficult choice in our culture. It's just a downright weird choice in our culture, to be frank. 
If you make this decision, if you decide to follow Christ, uh, you're going to look different. You're going to be odd in our culture. We have a culture that says, you know, just do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. It's all about fulfilling and pleasing yourself. It's a culture that worships self. But God says, no, worship me. And then you'll be set free from being in bondage to yourself and be able to give yourself to love other people. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says you can imitate God. You can actually be like him. You can actually be a sacrificing, loving person. You can actually live for something beyond yourself if you understand the gospel. If you don't, you're stuck in bondage like everybody else worshiping yourself. The only way we can get beyond that is, is to worship Jesus, the one who gave himself up for us. So the, the, so the start here is remembering who we are by remembering whose we are. Remembering that we belong to him, that we are his sons, his daughters. He delights in us through the work of Christ. And then this is where it gets difficult. This is really the meat of it here, of what it looks like to walk in light, to actually be different, to stand out, as I talked about, to be weird, uh, to be holy in a, in a good way. But as I said, in this culture, it's very difficult. It's hard to live this way. It's hard to get our mind on straight about these things. In Ephesians 5, 3, it says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which is lustfulness, you know, just the, I've got to have it. You know, I'm going to kill you if I don't get it. That's, that's what covetousness means. It's this over-desire. So sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. It must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Remember, we are saints. Saints are not just special people that have been canonized by a church official. Saints in Scripture just means holy ones. Anyone that God has set apart through the gospel. That's what the word means. Verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He's saying don't even joke about it. Don't, don't go down that road. He says don't stir that up. We need to be careful about what we watch. We need to care, be careful about the jokes that we tell and the stuff that we listen to. I'm not going to give you the rule, but if it is stirring you up towards sexual immorality, it's a mistake. He's saying to stop, to not go that route. Just because the rest of our culture does it, it's... That doesn't make it wise. That doesn't help us to live as light in this world. Verse 5, this is the hardest one, so just stay with me. Let me explain. Uh, verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Again, that work, that, that over-desire word, which really just means you, you worship whatever you want. You have an over-desire, you covet things. Does anyone in these categories has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partners with them. He's saying, no one who gives himself over to these things will inherit the kingdom of God. And you may be shocked, because we've, we've clearly proclaimed here that in Christ, everything is forgiven. That there's, there's no sin that's too great for God to redeem you from. There's no immorality, there's no impurity that God cannot save you from, and that is true. And, and we get confused here because I think often in today's world we kind of fall off the wagon of the gospel in, in two different ways. And this describes one of the ways we do that. One of the ways we do that is we say that God is love. And what that really means is that that angry God of the Old Testament, he was confused, but he's happy now, and, and everything's okay. And he just doesn't really care about sin anymore. And so really, you can just do what you want. Because God just loves everybody. And if everybody would just love everybody, then everybody would just be okay. And it's kind of the, kind of the gospel of Oprah. You know, just kind of like, does everybody be cool with everybody? And just stop saying that things are wrong and right. And, you know, making declarations of truth. That's just messing everybody up. And that's kind of that, that's that hyper grace. And so coming here, you hear us talking about God's grace and that he can forgive anything. And that none of you are outside his reach. That's true. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he just doesn't care and says, yeah, just live, do whatever you want to. There's no wrong or right anymore. But the other extreme is, yeah, there's a wrong or right, and it's what my club does. My club is wrong and right. We keep what is right. We keep the law. We are truth. Everybody else, they're the bad people. 
And that's the extreme, right, that you see Jesus battling with the Pharisees in the Gospels. You see all these conflicts that Jesus has. He's always getting in their face and having these arguments with the Pharisees where they would think that, that they had it mastered, that they could do it. And, and we usually kind of divide ourselves in these two camps. One camp worships sincerity. Hey, I'm just following my heart and doing what feels good, right? And you're still kind of worshiping yourself. You're just doing what you want to do. And God says, you know what? That's going to hurt you. You can't inherit the kingdom of God by worshiping self. You can't inherit the kingdom of God by worshiping your flesh. You can't inherit the kingdom of God by pursuing uh, your own pleasure. The other side says, we've got a handle. And Jesus again says to them, you can't inherit the kingdom of God by having faith in your own strength, your own religious goodness, your own arrogance. Neither one of those extremes will inherit the kingdom of God. Only those that trust in Christ and Christ alone and what he's done for us, that substitution that he gave himself for us, those are the only people that inherit the kingdom of God. If, if you try to get there on your own, he says you can't get there on your own. I'm giving it to you as a free gift. I will bring you in. And, and it becomes a paradox. Because again and again in the Gospels, Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Jesus says the doors are open. Repent. Come on in. Just The doors are wide. You are welcome to come in. Here it is. But it's because of what he has done for us. It's not because of what you've done. It's not because of what I've done. It's not because of how good I am or because of how sincere I am. It's because of Jesus giving himself for us. And that becomes the fuel then to help us live a righteous life, to actually live differently, to actually be light that shines in the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we should let our light shine, that people would see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. We should actually be a good example. We should be a blessing to other people. And, and that's the goal. Not that we should be a pain, not that we should be arrogant, not that we should be looking down on other people, but we should live this joyous, righteous life. We would be different and enjoy God and who He is and what He's done for us. He says, Let no one deceive you with their empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he says, don't, don't let anybody deceive you. Don't, don't fall off the wagon on that extreme of thinking, God just doesn't care and you can do whatever you want to now. He's saying, no, that's, that's not the true gospel. God cares deeply. He cares so much that he sacrificed himself. That he gave himself to take your place because of the bondage that you're in. And so he's saying, don't then give yourself back over to that bondage again because it's going to hurt you. Because he is your heavenly father. Because he does love you. As parents, if you're a parent, one of your jobs is convincing your children that you actually love them. Right? And that like five pounds of candy at night is, is just not the best thing for them. And yeah, you love them and you want them to have something sweet, but you also don't want them to die. You don't want them to throw up. You don't want them to make themselves sick. And, and that's what God is saying. He's saying, I love you. I, I came up with this. I know how it works. God, God's not like some Victorian God that's embarrassed about sex. He, he invented it. He, he knows how it works. He knows what it's all about. In verse 7 it says, Don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Just, just make an effort, okay? Try, try to live a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. Try to figure it out. Try to discern what is good, what is pleasing to Him. Verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is another weird one too, right? So now we're, okay, now we're like walking around with flashlights trying to expose people. I mean, is that what he's saying here? Um, I, I, I struggled with this myself as I was studying the text because uh, when you just look up the Greek word, it just, it's just a word for rebuke, right? So I was like, well, why are they saying expose? And all the different versions like to use the word expose when it's the word rebuke. And really neither one of them make a whole lot of sense to me. They don't kind of fit with my view of how the Christian life should be lived, you know, going around... You know, getting in people's face and exposing their sin. And I just didn't think that was exactly what he meant. And as we studied further, I understood that, that really it just means revealing something for what it is. And so you can understand basically grammatically what happens is when it's used with people, it often gets translated as rebuke, right? Kind of getting in someone's face saying, hey, you got a problem here. When it's used with objects or inanimate things, it's usually used in the terms of expose. Show something for what it is. And what he's saying, especially as you read the rest of the verses, you understand that what he's saying is, is live the life. 
live a holy, righteous life. And when you live a good life, when you have a pure sexuality, when you actually enjoy your own marriage, that's going to expose all these other varieties for what they are. That's going to kind of reveal uh, where things fall short, when you actually do things the way they're supposed to be done. So it's not you going around, you know, into some dark room and saying, hey, I'm going to expose you and what you're doing here. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that when we live a righteous life, just like it talks about in Matthew 5, that light shines out of that. When we have good works in our life, that people then see light from that. There's actually a blessing there that we're actually winsome, that, that our life is actually beautiful and attractive when we do things the way God tells us to do them. I think as we think through this idea of, of sexual immorality and, and these things that we're not supposed to do, it's important to at least just define it. Um, and the word sexual immorality is a Greek word, porneia. We get the word pornography, right? It's just uh, graphic images of sexual immorality, basically, is what that means. And the word sexual immorality is a good translation. And sex, basically, I would just define as, as genital stimulation. Pardon me for the uh, uh, scientific terminology there. I'm trying to keep it uh, not too embarrassing for the kids. But basically, we would just call it genital stimulation, right? And so sexual immorality, is, is that happening outside of the covenant fireplace, the holy boundaries of marriage? And that that's how God designed sex. Now, I know that our culture doesn't agree with that. I know actually in some countries it's illegal to say that. I don't know if you realize that. It's actually illegal to say that now in some countries. Because what I'm doing when I say that is that I'm speaking hate speech to people that, that want to try every other variety of sex. And, and I'm not saying I hate them. I'm just saying that the Bible says that the God who invented it, the God that created your sexual organs, designed it to work a certain way. And that God says he's our Heavenly Father, and he loves us, and he actually designed us for pleasure. I think there's, there's kind of three different views of, of sex in our culture. The, the first one is kind of the evolutionary or biological view, right? Just the naturalistic view. And that's that it's just urges, right? And they just need to be fulfilled. And why does everybody have to get uptight about it? Because it's just an urge. You heard that view before? Um, that, that's kind of a very common view in our culture. I think sometimes that, that bleeds into the church, that they're just basic urges we have. And just like I get thirsty for a drink of water, a drink of water, well, same thing with sexuality. And we just need to not be so uptight about it. Just fulfill the urges, just like animals, right? And, and so that's kind of a view that, that's kind of bleeding into the church now. The other view is more the Victorian, the prudish, kind of the religious or fundamentalist view that says, I can't believe you're even talking about it, right? Like, like that's the other view. Like, shh, don't say, don't say anymore, right? Um, for those of you that have a terrible stomachache right now and have for the last 20 minutes, uh, you would tend towards that view, right? That we shouldn't even bring it up, you know? Like, God didn't really mean for us to read those verses out loud in the Bible. Those were just, you know... Those were for quiet discussions on some other day. But, but that's kind of the other extreme, right? So one side says it just urges. The other side says don't even talk about it. And there's this third view that, that I think is the biblical view that says God created it for our enjoyment, for our blessing, um, to, to help us see how wonderful he is. As I said, when you think about it from a biological standpoint, that at the microscopic level, all, all the work he had to do, to, to make it all that it is, I mean, that, it wasn't just an accident. I mean, it's something he came up with. In the Song of Solomon 5.1, it says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And that's, that's the, the view of sex from the Bible, that it's actually something God came up with. He came up with it. It's his design. It's a beautiful thing. But he's created it to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a covenant, within the safety and security of permanence and a relationship that can never be broken. And, and that's what he's designed it for. We're going to talk more about marriage as we go on this summer, talk more about what that means. But just want to lay that out, that that's the ideal, that he created it to be enjoyed in this ideal setting of a relationship where you know you will never be betrayed, where you know that person will love you forever. As a friend says, when you're hiding behind the couch and they're throwing something at you, you're thinking, this is the person I want to fight with for the rest of my life. I'm not going anywhere. There's a permanence there. We are together, and nothing can tear me away from you. It is this unending security, this, this faithfulness, this, 
boundary, this wall, this security that you have with each other. And that's how he's made it to work. And he says then to those within that covenant boundary, he says, eat, drink, have your fill, you lovers. Enjoy this thing that I created, God tells us. I had a picture here of a fireplace just to think about the image of just the beauty and the wonder of fire. I love to build a fire and just watch the fire and to feel the heat and to see the light. But I don't ever just build a fire in the middle of my kitchen floor. Do do you do that? Some of you may. You're weird. You're crazy if you do that, just so you know. But, But you should build it in a fireplace. You should build it in a fire pit if you're outside. You should put it in in one of those little metal pits if you're out in your garden. You you don't just build a fire anywhere, but there is caution, and you've got to maintain security, and you've got to respect the fire. And that's the biblical view of sexuality. It's this magnificent thing, but you've got to be careful, because you can kill yourself with it. If you are, like this list describes, sexually immoral, impure, and covetous have these over-desires, these lustful desires that cannot be stopped, and you're really just worshiping yourself. You're really just worshiping your own urges. God says, don't worship yourself, but worship me, and then I will give you good gifts to enjoy. God designs us to enjoy things physically. He's made us for that, but he knows what's best. He knows when we can have a little bit of candy, and he knows when it's not a good idea to have 20 pounds right before bedtime. Because he loves you. You may not have had parents that really loved you that way. You may not have had parents that you were convinced really cared for you. And God repeatedly throughout the scripture says, well, yeah, parents can be bad, but I'm the good one. I'm the one that is the kind of parent you're supposed to have. The loving father, the perfect one who gives good gifts. We're not animals, and I want to encourage you that it's possible to live a pure life. Singles, I know this is especially difficult. I was single once. I, I understand I can remember what that was like. And, and I just want to let you know that, that being married doesn't just magically fix all your problems. Um, I think the married people could, could attest to that. We, we carry our sinful selves with us into whatever station in life we go. Whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we have kids and think that having kids is going to solve all our problems, or don't have kids. <laughs> Sorry, people with kids were shaking their heads. Oh. There's this thought that if I could just change stations in life, that would fix it. And God says, no, being my child, that's the issue. That's your primary identity. You've got to work on that. And then I may call you to change these other things and move around and do different things, but but be my child. And then you'll be walking in the light. Then you will shine forth good works. And you'll be an example to other people. The last thing that he explains is walking wisdom. Anyone that has an addiction will tell you, I was just talking to a friend about that this morning, that sometimes when you're trying to replace an addiction, it's good to replace it with something good, right? You don't want to just take away the addiction and then you're just kind of out there not knowing what to do with your hands or whatever, but you replace it with something good. And and that's really what we see in the last part of this. We haven't read this yet, but walking in wisdom is, is knowing what to replace impurity with. He says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So walk in wisdom, okay? And this is what it looks like. Verse 16, making the best use of the time. Make the most of the time you have left. This word is like buying back the time, okay? So he's not just talking to sexual prudes here and telling them how to live. The the church is for everyone. We talked about that. No matter where you've been and what life you've lived, God wants you to live this life of purity now. Even if you haven't been living a life of purity, God says, come on, this is the way to live And this is what it's going to look like. Come join me. We'll live this life of purity. You can buy back the time. You can redeem the time. If you feel like you wasted time and and lived in a way that was broken and you've kind of got this past where there's just like, you know, chaos strewn behind you, God says you can redeem the time. I have a picture here of someone purchasing something with cash, handing cash out. And that's, that's what this word means. Verse 16, making the best use of the time, redeeming what's left, buying it back. We know that ultimately Jesus bought us back so that we can make the rest of our life count. So that we can make our time count. We can buy back the rest of the time we have left. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. 
again, just a piece of advice. If you're struggling in this area, if you're struggling in the area of morality, don't get drunk. That, that helps. And that goes a long way. A lot of this stuff happens when you're drunk. If you would not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit, it's going to help a lot. It's going to help you to live a pure life. It's going to make a difference. And again, the Scriptures, wine is in a similar category to sex. You know, alcohol is not completely prohibited in the Scriptures. We're just told to be careful. It's powerful. Like a fire, it can tear up your life. And I know people who have allowed it to tear up their life. So they've set it aside. Some people still enjoy it, but you've always got to enjoy it carefully. You have to be careful with it. He's saying, don't go getting drunk on wine. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So being filled with the Spirit, he contrasts this, right? If you're filled with wine, that's called drunkenness, and you lose your inhibitions. He says that leads to debauchery, and uh, that's a big fancy word that basically he's just saying you, you cut loose, you kind of go nuts. You lose your self-control, right? So he's saying don't, don't be filled with that thing that makes you lose self-control, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, in Galatians 5.22, it says that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're actually trusting in God and not trusting in your own flesh, it's always contrasted, flesh and Spirit. If you're trusting in your own muscles, your own abilities, your own gifts, you're going to veer off. And you're going to get frustrated and you're going to say, I can't handle this anymore, i just got to get drunk. Okay? But, but if you're being filled with the Spirit, if you're trusting in Him, He'll enable you to move through those difficult parts of life. He's not going to just magically bless you and give you the new car and everything's going to be wonderful. But He's going to allow you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you're going to know that the Good Shepherd is with you. And he's walking with you through those times. And what that's going to do is it's going to result in a changed perspective. And you're going to begin to sing and to praise God in your life. And so he gives this description, really, of what church looks like here in these last few verses. He gives this description of the life of the church, living in community. And it's interesting to me, he doesn't say, file quietly into a room and sit in nice chairs and be quiet and listen to the pastor, um, which I'm glad you do. I like that. Thank you for doing that. I don't think it's wrong to do that. But, but he gives this description of a life lived in community. And he says, walking in wisdom means, instead of going from one partner to another, trying to find someone that loves you and convinces you that, that you are delightful, that you're beautiful, that you're worth something. Instead, join yourself in Christian community with other people that know that God delights in you. And you can encourage each other with that. And you can live a life of real community instead of a life of attaching and detaching and attaching and detaching sexually from multiple partners. You can actually live a life of real community with other people. And you can lean on each other. You can have fellowship together. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, when you're worshiping self, you don't submit to anyone, right? But when you worship God, He frees you up so that you can submit to others. That you can sing songs of praise to God. You can be filled with the Spirit. You can submit to one another. You can do life helping each other out. But, but that's what community is supposed to look like. And so that's the application of this last section, to walk in wisdom. Don't just try to unplug from an immoral past, but try to plug into real community. Try to connect with people that also love the Lord, that recognize that worshiping their urges is not going to satisfy them long-term in life, but that ultimately they need Jesus, one who loves them as they are, who forgives them for their sins, and calls them to live a righteous life. When you lock arms with each other, then you can submit to one another. You can lean on one another. You can build each other up. And that's what Christian community is supposed to look like. As we close up, I just wanted to go back to those verses. These are the verses that we kind of kept singing over in the music. In verse 14, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You see, freedom is, is no longer being that zombie it just kind of stumbles around in the dark. But freedom is having true life. Knowing that Christ gave himself for you and rising up out of the grave and actually living. You're not set free to worship yourself and, and go back into the grave. You're set free so that you can come out of the grave. So you can wake up from your sleep. So that you can live a life that has an impact 
in this world, that you can actually make a difference. You can live for something more than yourself. The God who gave himself for us enables us to give ourselves for others. Father, thank you that you love us so much. You gave yourself for us. Lord, as we observe communion together, I pray that we would remember you, the God who gave himself up, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice on our behalf, that we would live a life of love, remembering that we are yours. Thank you that you love us, that you delight in us, even though we don't deserve it. Father, I pray for those that, that have struggled with the difficult past, that you would free them from shame. I pray for all of us that we would realize that on our best days, none of us are beyond our need of your grace. On our worst days, none of us are beyond the reach of your grace. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name.